Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Last week we discussed the first Satipatthana exercise, the contemplation of breath, which is a body exercise. We saw that it, like all of the exercises, involves two stages internal analysis, and external analysis. We spend almost all of our time and effort in internal analysis. We saw that internal analysis is guided by the exercise per se, augmented by the impermanence teaching of the refrain that follows each exercise. The second of the body exercises deals with posture, It works exactly the same way with respect to internal and external and impermanence as do all the exercises until we get to the Dhamma exercises. The posture exercise is quite simple, but we will discover quite profound in practice terms. Again, Again, bhikkhus, when when walking, walking, a bhikkhu bhikkhu comprehends I am walking. When standing, he comprehends, I am standing. When sitting, he comprehends, I am sitting. When lying down, he comprehends, I am lying down. Or he comprehends accordingly, however his body is disposed. That's it. Let me repeat the paragraph from the refrain on impermanence which we fold into the exercise itself to complete the internal analysis of posture. He abides contemplating in body the nature of arising, or he abides contemplating in body the nature of vanishing, or he abides contemplating in body the nature of both arising and vanishing. As we go about our day, we are continually moving from one posture into another, depending on our activity. The instructions list a few of these. Walking, standing, sitting, lying down, then opens up to a host of postures. Accordingly, however, his body is disposed. This brings in a flood of possibilities. What is your posture when you are about to open a door? How about a car door? How about walking downstairs? Are you holding on to the railing? How about taking off your shoes? Wrestling with your dog? The instructions invite us to comprehend each posture, that is, to be keenly aware of the details how each of the limbs is disposed, for instance, which limb is pressed against which other limb, where are the contacts with the floor, chair, or other objects. Recall that comprehension, sampajanya, is one of the four qualities we have to bring to Satipatthana practice. The first is ardency, 
really take the practice seriously. It will actually open up another world of experience if it has not already and has the Buddha's seal of approval. The second is comprehension. The third is proficiency or dharmic know-how. In this case, bringing what we've learned from following the breath, how you've come to understand impermanence and non-self, down to habit patterns that enable you to focus attention or enter still states of mind more readily. The last is unhinderedness, to be free, at least for the time being, of worldly concerns. It's very, very hard to do this practice while you are arguing with someone at work or worrying about how to pay your bills. The less distracted you are, the more likely this exercise is to be productive. Recall that the breath exercise invited us to sit cross-legged in a secluded place. This is ideal for reducing distractions. However, with enough practice on the cushion, you should be able to practice under some other circumstances while walking, while waiting for the next client to enter, while waiting in a checkout line, often taking advantage of very brief windows of opportunity. But sitting in meditation posture seems to be the natural home for following the breath. Posture is different. You can sit on the cushion and contemplate your meditation posture, but you are not likely to see a lot of variation, which means that your opportunity to observe impermanence is reduced. Being engaged in a lot of activity seems to be the natural home for contemplating posture. Nonetheless, contemplating posture while on the cushion is a good place to begin. One of the things you will notice right away is how easy it is to observe the posture. You are probably expecting to have to do a complete body scan. You can do this, but remarkably, you will find that you can take in the entire posture all at once as a kind of mental image. Visualize all the points of contact and contortions of the body, and even pinpoint all of your bodily sensations within that mental image, all at once. The reason is that we have a built-in body sense called proprioception that does this for us. It's easy to see how proprioception may have evolved as a protective mechanism. With continual awareness of the full extent of our bodies, we avoid that which pokes, bites, stings, or otherwise inflicts injury, and we have enhanced motor control as we maneuver our body through and around objects in the environment. I once wondered if this kind of body image follows the contours of the whole skin or is more like the contours of a blanket wrapped around the body. For instance, if I roll myself into a ball... Is the image produced through proprioception ball-like, or is it complex and layered? I won't reveal my answer, but you can inspect it yourself. Equivalently, if you are sitting in meditation posture with your hands clasped, does the image separate the hands or merge them? You can ask yourself if the contact pressure 
that is pinpointed within the body image is attributed to one hand or another or both. Try touching a fingertip to a fingernail for a more precise investigation. I would be interested in knowing what you conclude before I tell you my answer. Posture and breath are both considered easy exercises in that both present themselves vividly and directly to the senses, are ever-present and easy to maintain continuously in mind, and invite the mind to settle into them. In fact, they tend to be very conducive to the meditative states of samadhi. The breath certainly distinguishes itself in its dynamic and rhythmic nature. Posture is direct and simple due to proprioception, which summarizes an enormous deal of sense data into an immediately available image. This is certainly why breath is central to a wide variety of meditative and contemplative traditions within Buddhism and without. Body awareness is likewise common. I practiced for many years in the Japanese Soto Zen tradition where posture has displaced breath and its centrality. An advantage of posture in particular is that it invites us to take practice off of the cushion. Satipatthana practice is by no means confined to the cushion. As we go about the day, we are continually in one posture or another. Take every opportunity to comprehend that posture. Notice patterns. If your right hand is reaching forward, is your right foot also reaching in front of your left foot? Pay attention. This becomes a powerful off-the-cushion practice that can be quite pervasive in the right context and is very characteristic of Soto Zen practice. I have been encouraging you to become very intimate with posture just as we become with the breath. This is what comprehension does for us, particularly fortified by ardency and unhinderedness. Now we bring Dhammic know-how into our comprehension of posture. Notice that we pass through a series of postures from one to the next. Each appears and disappears to give rise to the next. An important dimension of impermanence is conditionality. Things change because conditions change. I find the English word contingency captures well both ideas together, impermanence and conditionality. This world is in constant flux because everything is so contingent on so many other factors which are contingent on other factors. This is the heart of impermanence. We bring comprehension to this net of contingencies and thereby become intimate with contingency as well. As we observe postures coming and going, we also notice that this happens with changes in conditions, changes in the environment, and changes in the activities we engage in. Hunger or boredom leads to snack-seeking behavior, which leads to the familiar posture 
of bending at the waist with your head in the refrigerator, one hand leaning into the corner and the other extended backwards grasping the door. Everything we observe arises and disappears within this network of contingencies. Our postures do and even our observing itself. Luckily, there are recurring patterns in this sea of contingencies. Otherwise, we would easily become lost. What I've been talking about so far is internal analysis. The refrain alternates between internal analysis and external analysis. In this way, he abides contemplating body in the body internally, or he abides contemplating body in the body externally, or he abides contemplating body in the body both internally and externally. External analysis requires that we periodically contemplate body and body externally and then both internally and externally. The first brings the body as self to mind, the one we presume then have a lot of stories to tell about, such as how tall, old, or beautiful we are. Next, we check if we see any evidence that supports that body in the sea of contingencies in which postures play out. We never find the body or self in the potential evidence that we directly experience. This whole process is designed to evoke insights or realizations. Such insights are intuitive, seeing directly and usually not in a way that we can explain to others. The insights are your own. Intellectual explanations or metaphors might give you a jumping-off point, but will not reach your personal realization, which can be earth-shaking. But let me try a metaphor anyway. The insight into non-self is like growing up in Wyoming territory in the Wild West, dealing with Indians, rustlers, and unfavorable weather, trying to get cattle to market or crops harvested. Then you are told in 1878 that Rutherford B. Hayes had just been elected president two years prior. Your response is, What's, What's that, that got, got to, to do, do with, with me? me? What's, What's that, that you say he's president of? Your world of contingencies operates as far as you know, just fine with no president. Your affairs do just fine without a president or a USA. Bringing them up appears as an irrelevant intrusion into your life. Your postures and their conditions do just fine without this unseen abstraction of a self. I want to talk a little bit about samadhi. Normally, in fact routinely, satipatthana practice is experienced as a profound narrowing of attention and loss of distractedness as well as an extremely still, delighted state of mind that settles in. At some point, active thinking stops altogether. 
All this falls under samadhi, and the progression of jhanas take us deeper and deeper. This samadhi is critically important for the eventual success of satipatthana practice. In general, we do not have to worry about samadhi, however. It kind of takes care of itself and arises of itself, conditioned by full engagement with practice, ardent, comprehending, proficient, and unhindered, in short. Though samadhi has a mind of its own, at the same time it is a skill we develop and cultivate so that it becomes internalized as a natural inclination of the mind, and we learn to control it in subtle ways. You will experience samadhi in satipatthana practice, if you haven't already, but it will sneak up on you. Samadhi arises of itself, but is sensitive to many conditions. As you begin to practice with a particular exercise, there is a lot of thinking going on. We keep track of the instructions, have some uncertainty about what experiential factors we're supposed to be observing exactly. Does this belong to posture? Does that? Should I be scanning or taking it in all at once? Can I experiment a bit? What are the conditions for this particular posture? Let's check out this proprioception thing. When should I do internal analysis? And when should I do external analysis? That's all fine. Experiment. Get a feel for the territory. However, at this stage, samadhi is unlikely to settle in. There is too much thinking going on. Also, if we take satipatthana practice off the cushion, samadhi is even less likely to settle in. Do the practice anyway, and you should feel free to experiment and play around with the current theme of contemplation. The thing is, with persistence, you will find less and less thinking involved. As you gain a feel for the territory, the mind begins to comprehend effortlessly, automatically, what used to take a lot of thinking. This is not magic. It's the way we humans learn any skill. What is conceptually complex and initially requires a lot of thinking becomes conceptually complex, but a matter of immediate intuition. Consider how hard and exhausting driving was at first when you first got behind the wheel, and how effortless it is now, and yet you're doing the same thing. Each Satipatthana exercise is like that as well. As the exercise is habituated, you develop an immediate intimacy with the domain. The exercise is internalized as a matter of direct perception. That is when Samadhi will, at first, sneak up on you but then become a routine visitor. But don't wait for it. Just do the Satipatthana exercise with patience. However, as we train in these exercises, we are at the same time training our capacity for samadhi, and we fall into it naturally. Consider that over time we spend many, many hours in samadhi, often many hours in a single day, once we're into the swing of things. 
the disposition to enter samadhi becomes more and more strengthened. For many listeners, this disposition will have already been well-trained, and these still states readily at hand, even as you begin a new exercise. For others, don't worry, it will come. We'll talk about samadhi more as we proceed in future talks. Let me say one more thing, though. For many vipassana practitioners, this is not the jhana you've been taught. In later Theravada, jhana and samadhi became difficult. One-pointed meditation requiring a technique like following the breath at the nostrils or watching a kasina disc that is not compatible with the satipatthana practice I'm describing. It's too strong. It effectively shuts off cognition or even the senses completely. However, many learn to practice such a meditation, then come out of it as a preparation for satipatthana practice. I can see how this might work, though I've never trained in that practice myself. Next week, we will move on to the bodily action exercise. I should warn you that each of these exercises requires far more than a week to master. I suggest that each week you tinker a little bit with the last practice offered, but select one or two at some point that appeal to you as the basis of routine and ongoing practice. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita. That is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org c-i-n-t-i-t-a.